Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is, pod.com. We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them. We're talking about life and life to stream right to you from the microphone right to your home, dude. Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo, because there it is. Welcome to the There It Is podcast, a comedy podcast to help you find your inspiration. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Thanks so much for being here. Thoroughly appreciate it. We have a great guest today. It's comedian and motivational speaker, Mike Coteo. We have a really great chat. Also want to remind you to check out our YouTube channel. We're adding some old episodes there and making some changes. It's youtube.com slash there it is. And you can also go to thereitispod.com to find out some more stuff that we have going on there. We just recently posted our festival blog. Every comedy festival with open submissions in the month of December is covered in that blog. So go check that out if you are interested in doing a festival. We have stand-up, sketch, improv, and more covered. So go check that out. Okay, as I mentioned, we have a really great guest today. And it is Mike Cateo, a motivational speaker and stand-up comic. Let's listen to his story. Here's my chat with Mike Cateo. I was trying to find... Where you grew up, but I couldn't in find the, it. I assume it's New York. Were you in the state of I New keep York? It's a secret. I keep okay. it a secret. It's I grew up. Here's the reason. For years I had such shame about this. I grew up in Staten Island, okay. which is fifth borough. No one loves it. Everybody's <laughs> crap about it. And I was like, mm-hmm. not telling anyone. And once I once I reached my late 30s, I couldn't care less. Like I'm <laughs> right. I'm from Staten Island, Shaolin, y'all, what? Yeah, I mean, and now with, like, Colin Jost and Pete Davidson being yeah. from there as well, you, you got that cred. I got a little cred now, yeah. <laughs> so so you grew up there, and uh, you went to school in this area as well. How did the comedy bug bite you? It, uh, you know, I always liked being funny. I always, when I was a kid, I used to do theater, and I tried out for fame, like, twice and twice. I miserably failed. I was so, <laughs> it was, it was awful. I was so, I couldn't under, like, I, I tried out for things I had no talent in. I tried out <laughs> for singing to get in there and I can't, I can't carry a note to get a bucket of water. Like, I, <laughs> I'm awful. I'm an awful singer. And I tried out as a singer for LaGuardia as well. As actor. So, you but know, you just, didn't get any parts in it. I did not. I did not get into the school performing arts, but I I remember being like 11 and wanted to make people laugh. And I remember watching Showtime at the Apollo thinking I would do that one day. And Yeah, you know. just up in Harlem. Yeah, I, I actually did do. I performed on Amateur Night at the Apollo, which is oh, not really? the televised one. Um, yeah, that's and I, the one where they're nice to everybody. <laughs> they are not nice to everybody at the at the amateur night. They are not nice. They will. How old were you when you did it? I was twenty. Oh, okay. Well, no, yeah, that's why. <laughs> what? That's why they weren't nice. They're nice to the kids. I feel like a lot of kids do amateur night, and they're always yeah. nice to the kids at amateur night. Well, who wants to boo a kid? Come on, you got right, be right. But if you're twenty something, 
then yeah, yeah they're going to treat you with the full Apollo expectation. Oh, Apollo experience. So the first time I went up, I won, right? I, I like, I have an award letter and everything. After, after I won the award letter, I framed it and I, I never even framed my diplomas. <laughs> I framed my award. And so I, that was awesome because it, it just, I wasn't even a professional comic at that point. I was doing right. it as a hobby. And right. I just, I loved performing. I loved making people laugh. I grew up with a disability, mm-hmm. physical disability. And I realized that when I was really young, I realized if I made people laugh, they wouldn't feel sorry for me. So mm-hmm. it was it was my way of fitting in or getting people not to look at me different. Or And, you know, I turned it into a career. When did you start turning it into a career? So in 2002, I always say if I if I didn't have my sense of humor, I'd be dead. Like I've had a number of terrible things happen to me. Like mm-hmm. I was in this car accident. I, I'm permanently disabled because of it. I was I was raped at 19. I, I w- fell into drug addiction. I got HIV. So like lots of lots of bad things happen. And mm-hmm. You know, I'm just like, hey, let's tell a joke. So, you know, I I started like when I was diagnosed with HIV, I was 24, 25, and it was in 2002. And I was like, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna pursue comedy like a career. And I did. And I started getting paid shortly after. And I went from open mic to headliner in like three years. Oh, dope. It was it was awesome. I loved it. And then I started to get a lot of attention. Like I did this radio show called Opie and Anthony. Uh-huh. And like their fans are nuts. So yeah. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, I met no filter Paul. I still see him sometimes. And we were promoting the short bus comedy tour that I was on. And and so I went in and I did I, I did the show and Patrice O'Neill was on it. Ralphie May was on it. They, wow. Yeah, they. I got like a lot of good feedback from Patrice. He, yeah, he yeah. said, uh, he, I said one of my jokes. He goes, this is not word. It's funny. But he actually said the whole word. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that's a great compliment. If you can make Patrice. <laughs> yeah, for and, sure. And, yeah. And then after that, like one guy came up to came to a show we were doing in Jersey came up to me after my after the show while I was online for the bathroom and said he heard me on the radio and drove two and a half hours to see me. And that just blew my mind. Like, yeah. don't you have a life, dude? <laughs> like, I'm a nobody. And, and so that started happening. Other things like that started happening. And I just started to freak out and get anxious. Like you mentioned mm-hmm. before we went on air, I had a lot of anxiety mm-hmm. and started having panic attacks and I quit yeah. and I relapsed on drugs and I went I, I went back to school and became a psychotherapist and I yeah. did that for a few years. Yeah, but you have come back to public speaking and doing comedy. I'm doing comedy like my life depended on it. I <laughs> I traveled to Little Rock, Arkansas to do a show in front of like a crowd of 20 people mm-hmm. at the Looney bin and I uh I won a trophy so I can't complain <laughs> right Just like and the night before I I took my wife to perform at a swinners club 
I was performing, we weren't performing together. <laughs> that would have been something different. But but we got I had to so I performed at a swingers club and then she took me to the airport and I jumped on a plane to Little Rock and like it was wild. Yeah. It was so fun. And there's like comedy traveling is part of it and it's fun and it's exhausting all at the same time. For sure. You did quit comedy at one point. How long had you stepped away from it? Well, so I stepped away like I I think my last so I stopped performing as a career in 2007 and then friends of mine were still booking me for shows like come do this show come do this show blah, 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 in 2000 and so throughout the time I would do a show here and show there I would do like I would go two years without performing someone would say could you do a show for me I'm like yeah sure and I would do it for fun and like someone I worked with once said to me she she said your whole body lights up when you do stand up. Like after you come back, you look like your a thousand pounds have been lifted off your body. Oh, wow. And that's what that's what it did for me. It made me feel connected, but I was so scared of disappointing myself or disappointing others. Like I it just kept me away from doing stand up for a long time. Yeah. And in 2011, my buddy Danny Lobel was doing this web series called Rise of the Radio Show. And he asked me to be on it to play Colin Quinn's stalker. So I got <laughs> to work opposite Colin Quinn being a stalker who's stuck in a wheelchair. So it was, it was fun. And that helped bring you back into doing stand-up more regularly? No. Um, okay. <laughs> that was just a fun thing. I'm like, but I'm not doing I had a real fear of success. What brought me back into stand-up was I lost my job. I broke up with my partner and I needed to find something else to give me fulfillment. And a friend of mine who's who was a comic friend and has has died since then said to me, he goes, Oh, so your life's falling apart. You broke up with your boyfriend. You're you live. You have no job. Stand up makes sense. Like it's the thing we turn to. Right. We have no place else to turn. Right. Right. That's true. Sounds like you were able to do some sets here and there for fun, like you mentioned. I guess that kind of kept you from getting rusty with it. Yeah. I mean, you know, stand up. It's a lot like riding a bike. Right. I can't ride a bike. So. <laughs> but did it, was it sort of like once you got back on stage, did it click right away like it always yeah. had been? Okay. Like it, it clicks right. Whenever I take time off and then get back, it's like my body goes, oh my God, where have you been my whole life? And I just I fall right into it. Yeah. Getting back on stage after even a long break, is it sort of like talking to a friend? You know, like those friends that when you talk to them, even if there's been a lot of time in between talking yeah. to them, it's like no time had passed. Is it that sort of thing? Yeah, I fall back to the jokes I used to love. I mm -hmm. write jokes. I, I, like I, a skill I've acquired and like I'm really good at crowd work. So, I can go up woefully unprepared and just turn something out of nothing. <laughs> and that's what I love about the art farm. Like I 
I was doing a show once and I told the joke and nobody laughed. And I go, I hate my jokes. And then I just start talking to the audience. And uh, and I, I went on this little rant. I go, you know what we do? We tell jokes over and over again. And each time we got to make it sound like it's the first time we're doing it. And I freaking hate it. It's exhausting. And the comics started cracking up because we all know. Like, how many times can you tell the same knock-knock joke? Right, right. You also have done some public speaking, like some motivational speaking. Yeah. And I imagine that was something that was inspired by the work you started doing when you first left stand-up. Well, you know, it's uh, not really. I mean, the, the motivational speaking stuff really started from... So... My mom recently died, right? But mm. when... Sorry for your loss. Thank you. Thank you. It's just, it came up on the anniversary of her death. And so that was yeah. really hard. But like, this is a fun conversation. We're not going to talk about that. <laughs> but my mom... So I had this car accident when I was 18 months old. Mm-hmm. And my mom was really a... She was 24 or 25 at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and you really had, shouldn't have been driving. No, I should not have been. <laughs> Who gives a toddler the keys after a night of drinking? Really? <laughs> it's crazy. They wanted me to be the designated driver. I'm like, you guys, man. <laughs> <laughs> My baby wailing just sounded like a goat. I don't know. <laughs> I think or what. Um, so my mom really was... She had to fight. To, they wanted to put me in a home. They wanted to, like, they really com- tried to convince her that I would be better off being raised by strangers, you know. So that was the basis of all my motivational speaking is I wouldn't okay. be the person I was today if family wasn't the most important thing to my family. And right. like, we always laughed. Everybody in my family had a great sense of humor. So... Mm. Like my challenges became funny. There's this, there's this story in my family. Of, I was a stubborn ass kid. I was so stubborn. Mm-hmm. And my cousins had an event, had a party, and they they rented one of those Ferris wheel, not Ferris wheels, pirate ships where you go up like that, like at a carnival, but they come to you. The, the ones that swing back and forth? Yeah, yeah. We'll call it a Ferris wheel, like a pirate <laughs> ship Ferris wheel. So I was like, I want to go sit at the top. I want to go sit at the top. And they're like, no, it's not a good idea. I'm like, I'm going. Didn't listen to anyone. And I went and sat at the top and the ride kept on going. And then at some point, my butt slid off and I'm dangling on by one arm. Oh, wow. My mother, my aunt, my mother's aunt all start cracking up like, it's my, I'm 11 years old. They're like, he's not going to die. He's fine. And they just all start laughing. And the guy who's doing the ride is like, why are you laughing at this disabled kid who's going to fall? So my family, they had a good sense of humor. Yeah, it sounds like they did. And also, that's like the sense of humor of a stand-up. You know, yeah. like your family yeah. already had that. Laughing at things you're not supposed to laugh at. Exactly. And I, that's a great point. Like the world is too politically correct right now. (laughs) Like I want to be able to say what I want to say and have people laugh. And right. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, that is like an interesting thing. I don't, I haven't fully worked out why that is now. You know, is it just because everyone is hearing everyone's thoughts now that now we are hearing more criticism of things? You know, like 20 years ago before Twitter, comics could just go and say whatever and they're not going to get any pushback. But now, since everyone is being exposed to things and there's so many people who also then go on Twitter and share their negative critique on something or negative feelings about something, that does sort of automatically inform people about it, but with the context of this is bad. So, so you know, like I'm not one of those people who's like, oh, you can't make jokes anymore, but is it that there's more talk about it so we're hearing more sides of it. And also people are getting informed about things that they you know, didn't originally see themselves. I think, I think Jay, I'm, I'm in my forties. I don't know. How old are you? Is that rude? I'm tale? also in my forties. Yeah. Okay, cool. We're, we're Gen X. Yeah. Yeah. We're Gen X people. Right. So I think Gen X was the last great generation. <laughs> because everybody else is too fucking sensitive well it's you know it's it's funny you say that because i've kind of for a long time felt that gen x like and, and i guess this is also a meme unfortunately but it's not where I, I have the feeling i've i've long felt like gen x has always been the i i don't care generation you know like when boomers said stuff and complained it was right. like i don't care and now when it's like millennials and gen z complaining about stuff Gen X is like, I don't care. <laughs> like, it just, I don't care. Everyone's taking yeah, this but, too seriously. I don't care. Regardless of their old or young, I don't care. You're taking it too seriously. That seems like Gen X's deal. Motto. Yeah. <laughs> we were, yeah. We were, we were raised not to care, but we were left alone to our devices most times. Right, but, right, right. Like, I think. I think the reason people are so sensitive is because they were coddled to. I wasn't coddled to. I was dangling from a ride at 11 years <laughs> you old. You certainly weren't coddled. They're laughing at you dangling <laughs> from a ride. <laughs> I, it was me. My parents would not have let me ride that again. You know, they would really? never. My mom would have been like, you're not mom, riding that right again. My mom's thoughts were, we, my mom and dad, we told you not to go on. You went on. It's on yeah. your fault, bud. Yeah. Like, the thing is, like, you were fine. So they could laugh about it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. but, you know, if I was fine. My mom would still just be like, no. And you're always going to wear a seatbelt. And it's like, what? Now we're talking about cars? What does that got to do with anything? <laughs> they were probably like, well, he didn't die this time. So. <laughs> right, right. No, it's. And, it's interesting. It's like, you know, I feel like we're still we're going through the growing pains of having the Internet system the way we have it, you know, like yeah. having having social media. I also like I have a nine year old. It's mm -hmm. a stepdaughter, but we, I've lived with her since she was three or four. She was three going on. four. I've known her since she was born. Mm -hmm. Me and my wife have been friends for many, many years. So this fourth when when I started coming around, she was like a wild child. She like her mom gave into everything. There were no boundaries. And like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was the one who said, no, it's not OK to throw a tantrum at three in the store. No, no. Yeah. I'm going to take you out. I will beat you behind closed doors. <laughs> oh, I never did that. Right, well, yeah, you can't do that one. <laughs> yeah. You know, like there are you, you, you're around New York. You see a lot of parents not telling their children, no, don't do that. Right, right. Everyone, 
It's okay, honey. No, it's not okay. They rode over my foot with a scooter. It's not okay. <laughs> like, yeah, no, I every time that's my bone of contention walking through Park Slope is <laughs> like, why is this kid just riding full speed towards me? And their parents and why don't they saying, acknowledge me? Yeah. Right, right. Oh, God. And then the parent, sometimes the parent will say to me, like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I'm like, don't be sorry. Just tell them not to do that. Right. <laughs> Like, right. like that's that's what you're supposed like, to do, right? I, I will say to her sometimes, I'll be like, apologize, and she'll just to someone else, and she'll just stare at me, like, who are you telling me to do something? I'm like, I own you. <laughs> so, like, I think most of it comes from younger generation, past Gen X have been coddled, like, everything's okay, everyone gets a trophy, and Granted, I was in the Special Olympics and everyone did get a trophy. But well, you know, I mean, my age group got a trophy too. I mean, Gen X is it? I mean, we were coddled compared to Boomer. I guess Boomers yeah. were coddled compared to the greatest right. generation. You know, like everyone, the younger you are, yeah. the better you have it. Exactly. <laughs> they had to walk uphill in the snow both ways. <laughs> yeah. That's why it was like a thing people joked about. Is that like that's how. How grandparents used to talk, right? right. <laughs> Even boomers' grandparents talk that way. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's it's funny. I think culture kind of makes us like. I long for the days when the '90s were back in style. Like, <laughs> I just I miss the '90s. I do a little bit too, honestly. Uh, I've gotten nostalgic for the '90s recently, and not just like music either. Just like I want things to be okay again. You know, right. I just want things to chill. I want things to relax. I want everyone to just chill. And, you know, I don't know if that's, I don't know if we'll ever Stop be chill again. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. I just, will we ever be chill again? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. I'm not sure it's going to happen. <laughs> I think everyone's going to have something to freak out about. Well, like the, the, the Gen Zers will make everything okay. Hey, they they showed up for the election, you know. Thank the Lord. Yeah, it's this was this was very Gen X of me. I'm like the election was coming around up until the week before. I'm not gonna vote. I don't care what happens. <laughs> right, right. And then someone knocked on the door. I'm like, oh, there is an election. Oh, I should probably go vote. Oh, <laughs> yep, yeah. No, that's why it really is important to have like people knocking on doors. It seems like, yeah. it seems like it, it, but it does help get out the vote. Yeah. So what else are you working on now? Are you still doing the speaking engagements and doing the stand-up? You just filmed the special? The special went great. It could have been a lot better, but it could have been a lot worse. So I went, I'm looking towards going and doing cruises next year. I'm preparing oh. for that. Um, yeah. How do you prepare I, for that? Yeah, you just, you try to ca cut out all the curses and all your material. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, like, I can't talk about being a fisting puppeteer anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's so, got to be squeaky clean. It's it, it, PG-13. Like, okay. it can be PG-13. And a, a really good friend of mine has a connection with Dry Bar that he wants to get me on have my own dry bar special so i have a lot of people in my corner which i love so this is the one thing i'm i'm willing into existence i'm creating the first ever disabled comedy festival and oh wow it, yeah 
Yeah, I'm gonna, it's gonna happen in 2024. I'm gonna start applying for sponsorship in the new year. Hopefully we'll get lots of money to make it a success. Even if we don't get lots of money, it'll be a huge success. My ultimate goal is to have every comedy club be, every comedy club stage at least be handicap accessible. Okay. Because there are a lot of funny people in wheelchairs who can't get on stage. Right. Mm. Like, I don't care if you can get in the club, but at least like get them on stage. (laughs) Yeah. So this festival, you want to have it in New York. To start, I want it to be a yearly thing. I want to start it in New York and then maybe do, in the beginning planning of it, I was going to do it in New York, New Jersey, Philly, tri-state area. Because right now I'm based in, I'm living in Jersey. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I betrayed New York somehow, but here I am. (laughs) And... And so I I would love to have it be bi-coastal in a okay. couple of years. And that um, helps support the vision of making yeah. stages. Okay, right. yeah, so that, that makes sense. That's smart. You, you know, don't just do it in the same couple of clubs every time you do the festival. Just like have it all well, over to spread the cause. If you know any rich and famous people, send them my way. Let's see, let me think. Uh <laughs> <laughs> No, so that sounds awesome. That sounds really great. What? What? Do you have a name for it yet? Can you share it? The working title of the festival is the Stand Up If You Can Comedy Festival. Oh, that's dope. That's great. Yeah, we uh, keep tabs of festivals. So when the submissions for it go live, let me know because we I will. We do a blog about it. So let us know about it. Oh yeah. Okay, definitely. We'll do. Yeah. Well, that's a great cause. That's really awesome. And have you stopped doing more of the motivational coaching and speaking, or are you still doing that? No, I'm still doing that. I'm that's ramping up as well. I'm trying, I will like, don't tell anyone, but I prefer telling dick jokes more than I do helping (laughs) people get through things. It's really (laughs) terrible. Well, hey, you know, jokes are fun. Yep. Just keep that between us, please. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. What is your angle with the motivational speaking? Like, what do you pitch it as? In therapy, in my social work slash therapy days, like a specialty of mine became working with borderline personality disorder. So I know how to work with really hard to reach people. And one of the titles is of one of the talks I have is called Working with Difficult People. I used to have really bad anger problems. So I I have this three-step anger technique I use to help people manage their anger. I talk about self-sabotage. I did that a lot. I turned down a lot of opportunities because I didn't think I was good enough. One of them was there used to be the HBO Comedy Festival. Uh-huh. And the woman who was the main booker for that, she did a workshop where comics got up and told two minutes of their jokes and she'd give feedback. And when she got to me, her feedback was, that was awesome, send me a tape. And oh. what, she, what she was telling everybody else was, I would change this, I would take that out, I would put this there. And people, I was in a, I was in a room with all people I knew from stand-up and they just looked at her like, what the... F- So I was on cloud nine and then I started to think about it and I got in my head and I kept on saying, nothing's good enough. I can't do this. Nothing will work. And Mm -hmm. 
never follow through. And even if I yeah. didn't, and uh, Shel Butel, you know Michelle Butel? She I've has, heard the name. I don't. Know. She has a show on BT now. And we were mm-hmm. friends back in the day and we were doing a bar show together and she just got on she just got on montreal just for laughs festival Mm, and i I was congratulating her this was in 2004 2005 okay and and she said don't worry next year will be your year and had i followed up with that hbo person next year probably would have been my year but i let that slide yeah you mentioned earlier in the discussion like a fear of success yeah, I, I think that, you know, I, it's hard, like, oh, are you, do you do stand-up? Have you ever done stand-up? Yeah, I do stand-up. I actually did it last night. I haven't done it a lot since moving here. I mostly do improv. Where were you? I was at the Greenwich Village Comedy Club. Oh, nice, nice. You know, every stand-up comic you meet has, has a really, has a narcissistic edge, right? We all do. All performers do, but stand-ups really do, I think, because we're putting ourselves out there by ourselves and look at me, laugh at me. So I think it's really, it's hard when you have, I, I have that part of me, but I also, I have the part of me that's very insecure so those were always at odds and I couldn't I couldn't just live in the spotlight and be okay. I see you're worried about blowing up and then that blowing up your ego. I don't think my ego would be blown. I mean, look at my family, they would laugh at me. So <laughs> yeah, okay. So you would have been humbled. <laughs> right, right. Very, very early on. My dad also he goes, when I was 17, he looked at me and he goes, you know, you look a lot like Tom Cruise. And then a few years later, I reminded him of that. He goes, yeah, I never thought he was that attractive. And he kept on walking. I'm like, holy shit, that hurts. What a setup. Right? Right. So I come from a very funny family. Right. But for you, the fear was was not in how much of a jerk you would be. The fear was... What happened, like literally I remember what will happen if I make it. Every right. every set needed to be better than the last and I just yeah. created all this pressure that didn't need to be there. Yeah, that is a real thing among people in the entertainment industry. I mean, mm-hmm. I've even heard like the Eagles, this huge, like probably the biggest American band or something. Right. And they put a ton of pressure on themselves to top the previous thing. And a couple of the members, the, the a couple of the original members partly left because they didn't want to be that big. Part of the tension was just like not wanting to be, you know, super famous. Yeah. And and that's a that's a real thing that people can go through because what if you lose your anonymity? Then all the pressure, all the people who are expecting who knows what from you. Yeah. I mean, that's that's tough. I have a really good friend who was a finalist on America's Got Talent, and I caught up with her and was talking to her, and I said, so do you want to be... She she opened for uh, Fluffy, for Gabriel Iglesias, uh-huh. and she goes, I go, do you want to be that famous? She's like, you you lose your anonymity. I don't want to be that famous. I don't want to walk down the street and go, people go, Jada! But, yeah, yeah. and, and, that's a little bit of what I got after Opie and Anthony, after being on The Last Factory. I lived in New York at the time, and my best friend worked in Jersey. And she said she stopped at a gas station 
and she heard the guy who was doing the pump repeat one of my jokes. Wow. And she said, where did you hear that from? <laughs> and he goes, oh, this comic in New York, it was really funny. And I was, I was, I was excited and I was scared all at the same time when she yeah. told me. Yeah. So. I mean, what prepares you to experience something like that? <laughs> like nothing in life prepares you for that. So no. this that's not like something evolutionary. <laughs> like everyone had to deal with that. Like, no, that is a new emotion for people when they experience it. But I'm interesting famous. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, this has been a great chat. I've really enjoyed hearing how you've been approaching things and how you how you've gone about things. It's time to create something together can i just say something really fast i i think what's different this time for me is that i i'm i'm i got married in 2020 and my wife is someone who like fully supports me and like that helps because i have like something at home going it's okay you can do this you could you could get as famous as you want or not and we'll be okay no, that's super helpful. Yeah, that's great. I appreciate you sharing that. Well, yeah, let's create something together. And I'm wondering with your comedy, because you the sort of material that you generate and work with, like the, the subject matter that you work with, it's it can be tough for some people to want to talk about that. Most people don't even want to speak publicly, especially in a vulnerable way. So how do you go about talking about vulnerable things publicly is there some sort of process you have to go through or is it just really because your family was laughing at everything I, that happened you know, with you I was I was somewhere and someone said something to me about being vulnerable and I go you know I could do vulnerability in my sleep and he's like what I'm like I I live I can drop into vulnerability then come right out of it and mm -hmm. I think that's what comics as creators that's what we do we right. drop into the vulnerability we make people laugh and we jump out like ah. so it, it's like mm -hmm. a, a weird dance we do yeah oh that's interesting so when you're writing material and coming up with material and doing a set you are looking at that dance throughout it you're thinking about it like yeah. here's here's a moment to get vulnerable here's yeah. a moment for just like a joke right and if the joke doesn't hit as hard Am I being as vulnerable as I can be? Oh, interesting. Like, because if I'm talking about a serious subject and the the laugh is... When my mom died, like, mm. I I was preparing for this special. And I'm trying not to cry, man. I was preparing for this special. And she... um, And I thought, okay, I'm going to write five minutes and dedicate it to her. And so... A lot of the what I wrote was stories about things my mom said to me. She was really sarcastic. And she goes, I one of them was I used to have really long hair and my mother hated it. She she said, why don't you cut your hair? You have such a pretty face. Why do you keep your hair so long? And I said, one day I just got sick of it. I go, mom, but Jesus had long hair. And she goes, yeah. And they crucified him cut your hair like, <laughs> so i did those and then i each one of them was a laugh and then i told the story of the last time i saw her which was on halloween of last year and said 
you know, my I was hanging out with my family on Halloween and I was talking to my mom and, you know, she said she's not coming to my special because she heard some of my jokes and she doesn't like that I curse. And I was like, okay, mom, I get it. And I, you know, I, we left and I said, I love you and I'll talk to you later. And I, w- I went home and then two days later, my mom died. And, you know, it was, it was one of the hardest things. And I just start thinking back to things she used to say to me and I'm pursuing my dreams. And she always wanted her children to pursue their dreams. And years ago, I said to her, you remember, mom, I'm doing it. You remember when you said, all I want for my children is to be happy. And without missing a beat, this woman turned to me and goes, I never said that. I said, get a job. We'll run in my basement. (laughs) So the payoff was greater than the vulnerability. But Mm -hmm. the vulnerability was so intense for that joke that the payoff had to be good. So you're constantly working this balance. Wow. So, and and when you're working on the material if in front of a crowd and they aren't laughing, you said that, well, maybe I'm not being vulnerable enough for that payoff. Inside. What I usually say outside was, I thought that joke was funny. What the fuck's wrong with you? <laughs> and that usually gets a laugh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that can certainly let people's guards down because, some, sometimes when someone's being vulnerable, they're like, oh, should I laugh? Am I allowed to? And then when you give them the break, it's <laughs> to yeah. laugh at it by saying, I thought it was funny. Yeah, that'll get the laugh. Okay, cool. Well, there it is. Mike, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. A lot of fun having him on. I hope you enjoyed that. You can check him out online. Go to funnymanmike.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at funnymanmikecott and Instagram at funnymanmikecoteo on TikTok at funnymanmikec and Facebook at funnymanmike. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at There It Is Pod. Follow me on Twitter at Jason Far Jokes. On Instagram at Jason Farr Picks and on TikTok at Jason Farr Talks. You can also go to thereitispod.com so you can find out about our newsletter. We have a comedy lifestyle newsletter. It's free. It goes out every Monday. And you can subscribe to that there. You can also support the podcast if you can. We have a Patreon and a PayPal. Be on the lookout for some new fun episodes. Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr. (laughs) 